Welcome back to Screenfish Radio. I am so excited to have you here today as we are talking about one of the biggest films of the summer and potentially the year uh, in terms of anticipation. Uh, I was going to say Owen Nolan, Christopher Nolan's, Owen Nolan used to play for the Leafs, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Uh, And for a movie this big, I don't want this podcast to bomb. So I brought, (laughs) I've been playing that joke all day, Uh, brought in some great guests today that I'm really excited about. I am so glad to have uh, That Shelf's Victor Stiff back with us and friend of the show, Ben Dower. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. Anytime. I'm so glad that you guys could be here. Oppenheimer is set during World War II as General Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr. appoints physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer to work at the top secret Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16, 1945, as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. And as always, this podcast is rated S for spoilers. But uh, gentlemen, what did you think of Nolan's Oppenheimer? Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good film. Um, I don't know how accurate it was. I don't know enough about that time period to know, you know, what did they get right? What did they embellish or take creative liberties with? But I thought it was a pretty good film. I mean, even with its runtime, I, I didn't I didn't feel its runtime. Um yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'd like to see it again. It's one of the most impressive experiences you're going to have in a cinema this year. I'm not even the biggest Nolan fan, but the thing that I take away is just that experience of walking out of the theater and seeing everyone around me flabbergasted and just wanting to dive into conversations about the movie. Uh, it's just intense, totally intense. You know, I have to admit, I mean, intense is a great way to describe it because, and Ben, you said this too, it's a three-hour movie. I didn't check my watch. That never happens. You know, usually there's a bit of a lull. And, and this is a film that is essentially a legal drama for three hours, more or less. That You know, much was made. Uh, you know, Nolan has made comments about he didn't do any CGI, uh, what have you. But where would he have done it? <laughs> Other than the bomb, it's mostly people arguing and talking and chattering amongst themselves. It really is an intense experience. Um, it felt like three hours to me. By the two-hour mark, my legs were getting a bit restless. Again, it's like I, the movie, you know, it, it's just a nonstop pace. It's, it's so fast and visceral, but it definitely peaks with the bomb around the two-hour, two-hour 15 mark, and then it kind of switches gears from thriller to like a courtroom drama, and that's when it really caught up to me, and I, I was ready to head for the door. But I, I enjoyed it. It's just... If you love Nolan, you're going to love this. If you're kind of bored by a lot of his tics and the way he operates, this is just going to string up the same problems for you as well. Well, that's interesting because I actually wondered if Nolan held back the Nolanisms in this one. First of all, I could actually understand the dialogue. Um, the The audio didn't crescendo the way that he does. He normally is let go. In each film, he's, each progressive film, he seems to be more obsessed with a large baseline. Uh, there's a little bit of it, but it was a lot less than we saw in Tenet, where you actually have to watch with the subtitles on. Um, and uh, I, I now there was this. Pl- I he likes to play with time as well. Um, certainly, that's sort of the case here. 
Although I read an interesting thing that I, I was, and I know Ben, you and I were debating this on the way home from seeing it. The shift in color apparently was not so much a shift in time as it was in perspective, which I didn't catch up on. This is what he says is the second half is more from uh, Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s perspective. But yeah, yeah, the color proportions are from Oppenheimer's perspective. And it's like you're just trying to get into the head of this person. And it, the film literalizes this by you seeing like him thinking about constructing the bomb. And you can see like the atoms firing around and it's colorful and uh the scenes that are in black and white that's like things that are objectively true you can look up in newsreels and books and people are quoted in interviews so you always say the truth is black and white they literally do this by making the black and white scenes the objective facts and then everything else is is opinion what we think about him or how he may have seen the world that, that's a very interesting way to think of it i i hadn't thought of the truth being black and white and the rest is up for question i i did read today that uh his grandson uh, they asked his grandson what he thought of the film, and I guess the, he said, "I thought it was, I thought it was very good, except the scene where he poisons the apple, because he said there was no, there's, you know, there's basically one report of hearsay, like there's no substantiated, you know, factual. This is what happened, and, and in fact, Oppenheimer uh, apparently said it once on a trip, and the other guys didn't know what he was talking about or something, and this is where." Uh, the book because it was based on the book right american prometheus i think yeah 700 page book well the, the thing with the apple though i mean like this is the thing with biopics is do we want a literal depiction of the things that happen or do we want to dramatize because life even in the life of a man like him it's not as exciting as a story right you need these narrative beats and i just think that there's like a beautiful symmetry of him uh, creating a weapon something that can kill an innocent person right and then feeling regret and remorse and you can see the sort of person he has that intention that all humans have he gets angry he's petty he wants to hurt someone but he has to wrestle with taking it back versus building this bomb something he can never take back right i think there's just like a, a beautiful little symmetry between uh his worst intentions and his best intentions and, and how they use his beautiful mind to create the world's most deadly weapon interesting ben what do you think like uh do you do you want your biopics to be rooted in actual fact all the time or are you willing are you fine with liberties yeah i've been thinking about this because when i was young and you and i'd watch like say a movie based on a book i'd always complain oh they changed it they changed it you know but now i understand now that i'm older that you have to change it to translate it to screen it it won't work one-to-one -one. and and like victor said you need you need those narrative beats you need that structure to to remain compelling yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean, even even the concept, and I'm juking juking to the left here a little bit, but even the concept of a documentary, in some ways, we trust it because we're told this is how things are. But documentaries are framed with perspective; everything's got perspective. Um, but we struggle with that, you know. I, I how many films in the last? I think at least we do more so now than ever before. I feel like there's more films now where people are just saying yeah but you know what really happened it wasn't there or they spoke to this and and it's and most people it for most people it's it's a, a struggle for me that's not an issue because i understand they're trying to build a narrative build a build a story like you were saying well um, especially a filmmaker like christopher nolan his films it's like I, I find them too mechanical they're like intricate clockwork puzzles 
And if you like get caught up in the minutia of it, it doesn't work. It's like the first time you see it, you get caught up in the rush of emotion, the big score, the, the fast cutting, uh, the beautiful cinematography. And then like you go back and you watch something like Inception, a movie that I love, maybe my favorite movie he's ever made. And you look and you can see how technical and detached it is, how no one's a real person and half the dialogue in the movie is just people explaining how the movie works. So, you know, it's like if you're you're getting caught up in the details, you're never really going to enjoy a piece of art. You, at some point, you have to just like let yourself go and, and go along for the ride. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's a, you bring up Nolan's sort of uh, colder, more technical side. So, I mean, we didn't talk about this beforehand. I'm just thinking of it on my thinking of it here. Um, sex <laughs> in this film um, is uh, Nolan has never had any nudity in a, in a film and he includes it here in this particular story. And I'm just intrigued to see how you both felt about its incorporation in the story, whether it was necessary, whether it added to it or why he seemed to shoot it the way he did. Go for it. <laughs> Come on, Ben. Well, I didn't, and what is necessary, right? Like stories are, are basically tales that we can manipulate and control to some degree. Um, so was it necessary? I, I don't know. I, I didn't feel it was necessary to tell the story, but apparently he felt differently. So with a know? master filmmaker like Nolan, everything is an intention, right? So this three-hour movie, every scene, every second is film, he put there purposely, right? So you have to think, what is in his intention showing this, right? It's it's not a mistake. It's not the people at Universal saying, hey, let's put some TNA in this movie and we're going to sell more tickets. Like, he did that. And I think he's really just wrestling with, like, these primal themes of life and death and, and power uh, and guilt. Because, like, one of those nude scenes is when he's in the room being persecuted and his wife's there. And it's like uh, his his lovers like looking at his wife. So that's kind of literalizing his shame and his guilt and uh, having his life put on front street. Um, but I think uh, the other part of it, it's just showing like the base instincts of people. We're just these like highly evolved apes who are barely, you know, developed culture and cities. And now we have the power of gods and atoms and the universe at our hands. And how are we going to wield it? Right. And he can't even control his own temptations. And yet he's charged with wielding the power of the universe. See, see, it's interesting that you say that. Well, he certainly can't control his temptations because they refer to him as a womanizer uh, in this film. But it's interesting. It's not you don't see him with dozens of women. Um, you see him with his wife and primarily uh, Jean uh, Florence, Florence's character. I mean, there is another woman in there, too, but it's not like. You know, it's not like the Playboy Mansion where, you know, or anything like that or anything crazy. But it is interesting to me because it feels so cold. These scenes feel so cold. And yet, like me, and again, that's why I think about the Nolanisms, because so much of the scenes are them just discussing things. They're sitting in chairs and they're talking to one another. Uh, there is the scene in the boardroom. And actually, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually thought that was a really interesting way to place to bring it in. This wasn't just a scene, like you said, where they just slid it in there uh to make a, a couple you know a few extra mil um which is what keeps me asking the question like is this is is this oppenheimer's you know uh frailty isn't the word um but his his, his openness his him at his most open um 
oh man, the word is escaping me now. Or, or vulnerable. Vulnerable. Thank you. Is it just a question of vulnerability here? Because that's almost what it seems in those moments. It's there's very little actual sexuality. There's a lot more nudity than there is sexuality in this film. And I'm not saying it's all nudity. That's not what I mean to say at all. I'm just saying in that context, there's far more just being naked with one another than there is any actual physical act. Yeah, Nolan makes movies, in my review, I call them like a someone sent a Terminator to film school. Like technically everything is very precise and there's a wild attention to detail and he's a perfectionist, but it's almost like he's making scenes of, of love and sensuality as an alien sent to earth would, would make them, right? It's like, oh, there's gonna be nakedness. It, it's just, it doesn't feel authentic in any way. Um, it works when you put it on screen and you know you're, it's well lit and you have these gorgeous actors together and the music kicks in you feel what he's going for but when you like think about it in your head it just uh i don't know i, I feel like that's a bit of a misstep right no i could see that um then that was... could be like well like when i saw the movie i came out and i went that's it that's what the fuss is about like yeah because again like you said it wasn't anything that there wasn't a big deal made out about it like in the movie like it was just it happened where it happened and then moved on it wasn't a it obviously wasn't there to get to get people in seats it might have been uh talked about to get people in seats but that it wasn't there for that and you could and he, like you said it was very detached it was very yeah, yeah. and you you add on that he has a reputation for not developing strong female characters right he he uses women as plot devices you know a woman in danger or a dead wife and that drives his male protagonist so to throw in these characters who feel sidelined in a three-hour film and then some of the limited screen time they do get is a nude scene like he should know better than that i like these i agree with that that i think that that was one of the things that like i'm not trying to take any way for thing away from the film but it was sort of like that's what she gets <laughs> i'm like that's that's all uh -huh. um and i understand you have three hours of film already and there's only so many threads you can you can follow but oh my word even even emily blunt uh who's in it far more um really has one scene where she really is allowed to shine and i thought oh my gosh that's okay i like the idea that when you say nolan should know better i agree with that yeah he opened the door to the criticism he knows it's coming but if anyone can stand it it's him one thing I have to admit uh, that I was really impressed about in this too is its supporting cast. I think Downey absolutely rocks this film in so many ways. Uh, but it, it is funny, like between this and Barbie, it feels like everybody in Hollywood is in one of the two. Uh, but Oppenheimer has such a has such a strong cast uh, across the board. Um, that I think Downey really really stands out. I think it's essential in a movie like this because, I mean, I will consider myself a pretty smart guy and I watch a lot of movies and at a certain point I had no idea what was going on. Like just all the time jumping and characters coming and going and the, the theoretical physics and I just like threw my hands up and it's like I'm, I'm on board for the ride. So I think it's essential you have recognizable character actors who can come in and it's like maybe you don't know what Matthew Modine stands for in the film, but you have a relationship to Matthew Modine and there's a certain authority he brings or Josh Hartnett or uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh, right? He comes in and he just feels fatherly. You get that. Um, if they went with bit players for this, I would have just been completely lost. 
yeah it, you need a roadmap to keep up with the characters um for for sure i think that's how it's making its its extra box office is people have to go back to figure it out that's true so that's funny because like i didn't recognize half the i don't watch a lot of hollywood movies so i didn't recognize all the faces i had to go by the plot and the characters so i had a very i probably had a very different experience for me because I, I came i said to steve it's like you know i got to like the the middle of the third act before I realized that was Robert Downey Jr. Like, or whatever his name oh, is. Yeah. He's almost you know. unrecognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was it uh, that played? Oh, sorry, Ben, go ahead. Oh no, that was all just like, I didn't, I didn't know who those people were. Right. Like for me, it was all. Yeah. That's funny. It's just, yeah. But I, I do, I mean, I'm no expert, but I have some familiarity with, with the making of the bot, very little, but enough to know the timeline of what happened, you know, so um who played the president was that gary oldman yeah very hammy gary oldman <laughs> it was like an snl character he was so over see i didn't recognize him either yeah yeah i, I didn't recognize him either but yes you're right <laughs> they gave him three minutes and said go to 10 and yeah, he did he went hard <laughs> yeah. uh, you know i i think the the film is there's so many uh, one of the things i appreciate this film is that it it really is peeling away the layers. It's really a character study. I mean, much has been made, a lot of things about the actual, you know, the scene, the scene with the bomb and, and whatnot, but it's called Oppenheimer for a reason. Um, and I would love to hear your opinions on him in this film, because certainly the film isn't really sure if he's hero or villain or a mixture of both. I like the ideas in Christopher Nolan movies better than the movies and the characters themselves. Like I like mm. the themes he wrestles with. I don't like his execution of them all the time. And Oppenheimer is a bit of a cipher, right? Like you have this magnetic presence like uh, Killian Murphy on screen and he has these haunting blue eyes that convey so much of like the tone and he's like the, the, the feelings he's wrestling with. But the film doesn't do a good job of really like putting you in his headspace and making you understand what he's going through right like is he driven by ego is he a shallow person is he an egomaniac is he uh really like considering the weight of what he's going through like you really project your own thoughts onto him a lot of the time more than the character literalizes like the themes happening in the movie ben what do you th yeah i i hear you ben ben what do you think this question again like in more detail again <laughs> i said it's oppy uh Oppie portrayed as hero, villain, or a mixture of both? Um, kind of a mixture of, well, I don't know if hero is the right word. Okay. Um, a scientist focused on his studies who, you know, is so focused on, on getting, solving this problem that it's too late before he truly realizes the gravity of what he's done kind of thing. I, I don't, I wouldn't call it a villain and that he's not, I don't know if he's deliberately, you know what I mean? Like how, and then the way he was portrayed. Yeah. I mean, I have strong feelings about the bomb itself and its use, but I don't know if we can pin all the blame on him. And even in the film, the way he, he he's, was really wrestling with it more so after like when they were building it he seemed to keep everybody on task but once it was done he kind of fell apart right 
Did you notice that? Is that did yeah, I watch that they right? Dragged could... him, they dragged him through the coals when they didn't need him anymore, right? Yeah. But I think the beauty of the film is just that there's no definitive answer, right? Because we never, we don't see the alternate scenario where things go worse. It could have gone much worse if they didn't develop the bomb, if someone else got it first, or if they never used it, like maybe there was no need to use it. Like we'll never know. So it's like, it's interesting to play with the idea. Is this the ultimate deterrent or is this, you know, something that's going to have repercussions, even if we haven't seen them yet, maybe in another 15 years, we're going to see the fallout of the decision he made in the forties. Yeah, I see. I, I felt that they portrayed him. I, I, I'm hearing what you're both saying. I almost felt they portrayed him as a guy who, who had good vision, like uh, not 2020, well, hindsight, had good hindsight, but he didn't have clarity in the moments. Like, I think that was part of the reason for including the apple. Because he does the apple, he leaves the apple, he wakes up in the middle of the night feverishly worried that he had made the apple and then he runs back and he knocks it out of uh uh Kenneth Branagh's hand to prevent anyone from actually doing the damage um and, and he's such an interesting character because it seems to me because he handles his life like that handles his relationships like that like Ben you talk about him being a scientist like he's very methodical but it's almost like the method is the moment as opposed to the full uh, full formula. He has the formula, but I don't know where it ends, but I gotta, I gotta figure that out. And then when you have the, for, they have the answer, then you look back and say, I should have never had the formula or, or something like that. If that's a way of describing it, I may have just said something nonsensical. Um, well, he's, he's, he has blind, blinders on while he's chasing it. He's not really looking, it's tunnel vision. Uh, well, for sure. Which begs the question. I mean, this begs the question then to you guys. Um, this is a film that is holding science up by the throat and saying that, or asking the question of when does the pursuit of knowledge become too much or the pursuit of achievement become too much progress, if you will. I'm wondering how you feel about that idea and, and if that applies here to the story. I mean, that's a question humanity has been wrestling with since we've been telling stories, right? I mean, the, this movie was based on a book uh, named after Prometheus, right? And taking fire from the gods. Um, I think that's something we need artists and philosophers to keep debating because um, there's no metric, there's no scale where we can put progress versus cultural impact side by side and see a one-to-one, -one, right? So um, I know like we're polluting the environment like ever before, we're uh, running out of clean water, um, but we're running out of resources. But at the same time, if you go by the quality of life around the world, there's less people dying at a young age, people are living longer, there's less wars. Um, so you, like, where's the trade-off, right? Like we we have to have conversations like this and kind of figure it out as we go along and see what's suitable to the time but like the rules that apply in wartime aren't necessarily the rules that apply now because we'd have a different opinion if they didn't use the bomb and the nazis won the war and we'd be looking back in history saying why didn't those cowards do it yeah that's a that's a fair a fair statement ben what do you think well i think 
I think the pursuit of knowledge is a good thing. I think I also think it's an inevitable thing. Like we all know the dangers of AI. We know where this is going. We're going to do it anyway. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. There are too many forces at work pushing this technology and moving it forward. And it's going to that that era is is starting to begin, right? Like we're starting to see advances in AI technology. I mean, isn't that part of what the the strike is about in Hollywood right now? Yeah. 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 I mean, I I support the strike, but I also don't know if there's anything we can do to stop that progression. You know what I mean? It it is. Because because, because Oppenheimer hadn't made the bomb and the Nazis failed and Japan never made it. They, They were about to surrender anyway. Somebody would have done it. We would have got there. Yeah, the the wartime aspect of this conversation is is interesting as well. Like, I feel like Nolan offers Oppenheimer's team an element of grace because we certainly look back on this. What is it? Seventy years later, eighty years later, I think, uh, and and we see it differently than they would have in the moment. Um, he is you know certainly the military are using it for their own purposes and their own ways but there's a certain element of of oppenheimer there because he's faced with the fact of we have to build this before the bad guys and uh but at the same time i mean i think we're left asking the question of yeah, I guess I guess you're. I mean, Ben, you're right. Like somebody else was going to do it. Somebody was going to do it, and it's the same with AI. Who should do it first? Who determines also, who should do it first? Well, who determined who should do it now? Who did it? Who did yeah. it? Who did, what determined who did it? Right? It was oh. just they moved quicker. Also, go and ask the people of Japan who the bad guys are. Right? They have a different perspective on it than we do. And the film really skirts. You don't actually have to live with the devastation that those people lived with. Right? It wasn't just the blast. It was the suffering and the radiation poisoning and watching their bodies deteriorate in real time that they had to live with, right? right. So There's people it's... now living with that. Yeah. From that event. Like, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and there's been numerous tragedies since from the testing that has contaminated nearby places. Um, the Lucky Dragon number five fishing boat that inspired Godzilla. Um, that was an incident. Um, you know there's continued to be tragedies from that development. I think that's why I appreciated that the film painted the US government as so villainous in this one. They could have gone the opposite way and said, rah, rah, look what we did. They didn't. Uh, Obviously, you know, there's no love here for, you know, what was going on in, in World War II in terms of the Nazis and everything going on. But to but to point the finger a little bit at the U.S. and say to show uh, Truman, you know that scene we joke about that scene with with uh, with Truman, and just how you know over the top like, you know he says you didn't even drop the bomb I did, you know it's all guess guess what I did now look look at this the power's in my lap, and all of a sudden you know it, I mean when they're building it if I I think correct me if i'm wrong a couple of times they mention about how bringing the bomb is going to bring peace because if everybody has the bomb then no one's going to drop it well 
that only works until it doesn't. Yeah. We're, we're on tremendously borrowed time right now because there's been so many near accidents and who knows how many are out there that we don't know about. Like we're really counting on all the systems working all the time. Yeah. You know, it could just start one day due to a system failure. It, which, which I know somebody here brought up I, AI. Uh, yeah. You know, again, we found, I, I was telling you before the podcast, I always go back to Goldblum and Jurassic Park. We spent so much time thinking whether the scientists spent so much time, whether or not they could thinking whether or not they could, they never stopped to think whether they should. And, and, and I think we just have in this, this, this desire to try and push the boundaries and keep trying to do things. But in the, in the interest of considering the consequences, I think that's something where, where we fail. I mean, there's consequences we can't foresee. I was having this conversation with my wife today where, you know, I grew up to this day, I get a thrill walking into a library. I look at the books on the shelves and think there's so much knowledge here. You, you can like all the information in the world is at your fingertips. And when the internet started coming to people's homes and going into smartphones and we have libraries in the palm of our hands, I mean, this is incredible. Anyone can learn anything from anyone. But the thing nobody anticipated is you're going to be putting stupid people in contact with other stupid people. And that has such a detrimental effect. Like, doesn't matter how much you uh, elevate the collective intelligence, it's the knuckle draggers who are going to ruin it for everybody. And here's like a crude metaphor, but it's like everybody's using a pool. Everyone uses the shower before they get in the pool. They're not wearing the shoes on the deck. It takes one dummy to poop in the pool and every it's ruined, right? Like and the Internet is bringing all those pool poopers together and they're just like causing problems in ways we never predicted. I saw a stat today, like one in three TikToks is just misinformation telling people, you know, don't use sunscreen, you're safer without it. It's like, yeah, we can't foresee all the ways that giving something like AI to stupid people with bad intentions is going to trip us up in the long run. And it continues to get worse. You know, it's funny, like the, I, I had to laugh, this is a bit different. And also, by the way, pool poopers is the best analogy I've ever heard in my life. Um, but threads, Threads just comes out, right? And everybody's like, oh, good. Threads is going to be the place where everybody is happy. We're off of Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's the most ridiculous argument because every, if Threads takes over for Twitter, everybody's just going to move over. Everybody's just going to move. Yeah. Same problem. Um, but it is, it is fascinating. Like, you know, since the Trump era began, and I'm sorry, before as well, but I'm focusing on that because it was the, the fake news conversations began in that time when he you know people are saying but this is what you did and this is what is what is real nah it's fake news it's just the just those uh those liberals nasty liberals you know lion ted and all this stuff uh, ted was conservative but you know what i mean he would just say something wasn't true and then truth took a big hit at that time yeah um it 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 was nasty how it started there and it's i mean this is why a film like this i think is so interesting is because it clearly is looking back on the moment with regret but not entirely it is a fascinating little give and take yeah i mean it it spends more time chastising the men who weaponized it than the man who created it right yeah like that's what the last 
last act of the film is just focusing on people who raked uh, Oppenheimer through the coals and how little men, lowly men with big egos are the root of all the world's ills. Well, maybe, maybe therein lies the problem. Maybe that's it. It's not, maybe the villain of this film is, is us, not the three of us, but I mean, in general, because what you've got is people that are trying to create now again, but they immediately weaponize it. Yeah. It's, it's the weaponization. I think that is the problem. And, and there we can kind of blame Oppenheimer and the scientists in that they knew they were making a weapon. Right. Right. Like they knew what they were doing is making a weapon. There is an attractiveness in the scientific challenge, which I can also understand. Right. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you know, you're making a weapon. So to some degree, yeah. But again, if they didn't do it, someone else was going to do it. I mean, the United States did it. Then Russia had one, I think, by the end of the decade. Like, and then, then, then the hydrogen bombs came along. And now how many countries have them? You know? And some of the like, information they had to build their bomb came from a leak from working on the American bomb, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fast track there is that. opposition. Yep. I think that's why I like the bomb scene itself, which is 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 somehow they have they they blow up the nuke if you will they release the bomb but there's a mixture of feeling in it you know oppenheimer is both thrilled he's accomplished it and there are people high-fiving but there's also a sense of horror in it as well they didn't just they could have just you know waved the flag and they're like yeah we did it but there's a sense of sadness and um, yeah. Well, by the time they tested it, the Nazis had surrendered. Yeah. That side of the war was done uh, April or May that year, right? And Japan was on the verge of surrendering. Japan was pushing for a conditional surrender. And the United States was demanding, well, the Allies were demanding unconditional surrender. And when Japan wouldn't give unconditional surrender, that's when they used the bomb. But make no mistake, Japan was pushing for a surrender. From my understanding yeah see that adds that adds another layer to the conversation too right you yeah, know here so the movie well, their whole argument is these guys will never give up that's right absolutely um yeah we talk about it now with the war with russia and ukraine like we talk about putin won't give up because he needs he needs a way to save face. And it was kind of the same situation with Japan. The, the leaders were, were in a spot. I mean, if they give up, they were at risk of execution and having the whole, all their system, you know, all the power they had, everything taken away from them. And you know what I mean? Like they, they were looking for a way out. And in a way, the bomb gave them that excuse, that that way to say, you know, we can, we can, you know, but there were other factors involved in that surrender from my understanding as well. Um, going back to what we were saying, I, I just looking up some quotes from the film and I love this one here. Oppenheimer says they won't fear it until they understand it and they won't understand it until they've used it. Theory will only take you so far. Um, I love that. I'm just thinking this on yeah. this idea that if we don't, if we're not like his, in, 
his conversation he's having here is just talking about how until they've used the bomb, they're not going to understand the power that's been unleashed. I think we don't have a certain sense of reverence for this sort of thing. You know, when we create, we create blindly. And I understand the desire to try new things and that's what progress is, you know, like AI is a tool like any other tool. But what are the what are the ramifications of bringing that into existence? Who, who does it hurt um, in the process? And as we've been saying, who can weaponize it? But they could have used a show of force that didn't have to devastate two cities, right? You could have yeah. done it somewhere much more rural where they would get the idea of how much devastation the bomb laid, right? You didn't have to drop it two times. Um, it's like building a flamethrower and being so proud of yourself. You built the flamethrower and then handing it over to a five-year-old. Yeah. Like you did something impressive, but no good. There's no way this isn't ending badly for someone, right? So yeah. how much pride are you going to take in that act of genius when you it's attached to this act of devastation? Yeah. Well, Japan had been already devastated. Like Tokyo had been burned to the ground in the Tokyo fire raids of March that year and the leaders had not surrendered, right? Like... They, I believe my understanding is they were preserving cities so that they could drop the bomb on it as a show, like to show them. There was a couple of cities they left off the bombing runs so that they could drop the bomb, the big bomb on it when it was ready. Um, yeah, because they list, remember in the film, they list a couple of cities, right? Um, yes, 10 of them. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Kokura, Kyoto, and I think there was another one. Um, and then they take Kyoto off the list for its historical significance. Um, yeah, those were ones that had, had, hadn't been bombed or not badly damaged. So they could assess how the bomb would act on a city. Yeah, but uh, most of Japan had, was in ruins by that point, um, including Tokyo itself. And, and see, this, this is what, I mean, obviously, the, the death toll, the damage of this is unbelievable. But it also what makes it so toxic when you watch it in the film is because this idea, it's a plane is flying overhead, um, but it, this very idea that, okay, well, we're, we were doing this to make people back down and they're backing down, but let's use it anyway. Now they won't back down. Now they won't back up again, if you will. They're not going to come back because we've done this. And it's just this unbelievably excessive response. Um, and totally goes against everything they were saying, of course, at the beginning, right? When, you know, there was, forgive me when I say a higher level of necessity, because I'm not suggesting that even the, the atom bomb necessarily was necessary, but certainly was more rationalized in a wartime setting than it was as the war is wrapping up and everybody's, everybody's tapping out. Yeah. Uh, I've heard the claim, and I'd have to dig into more about this, but that it was aimed more at Russia than Japan, that the United States was saying, we're the new ones in charge and we've got this fancy weapon and we're not afraid to use it. I think that's suggested in the film, actually. It may have been suggested in the film as well, um, but I've heard that through other sources and stuff. But yeah, it was more, you know, it was, in a way it was almost the first shot of the Cold War. Because yeah, Russia, Russia declared war on Japan, I believe in between or on the day of the bombing of Nagasaki. Um, and they moved into Manchuria and started pushing the Japanese back on the mainland. 
And I've heard that is what triggered the Japanese surrender. They, they, they surrendered to the Americans based on that because they didn't want to be divided like Germany. Yeah, I think the film does a good job of highlighting that the bomb for the US is more, more than World War II. They're looking ahead. They're looking ahead. Oh, yeah. It was very much for looking ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, right off the bat, it's, well, let's, let's make a hydrogen bomb. <laughs> you know, like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think Nolan does a good job of drawing, uh, of letting, again, he likes to play with time, but I think he does a good job of sitting in the moment, but also looking ahead. And even that, that whole story with, uh, with Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Strauss, you know, it takes place, I think, 10 years after the fact and seeing the, no pun intended, fallout from the activation of the, of the bomb itself. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about with this film that we haven't yet or, uh, or whatnot as we're getting a little close to wrapping up? Is there anything else you want to tackle? It looks incredible. Uh, it looks like no other film you're going to see this year. Um, Nolan is a stickler for only shooting on film and using IMAX cameras, which are a pain in the ass to shoot with. They're gigantic. They're hard to mount. Uh, they're very loud when you're shooting with them, and he does this so that the viewer can have the best cinematic experience possible. So um, I know opening weekend, it was impossible to get a seat in an IMAX theater trying to see like a 70 millimeter print. Uh, but if you can, do do a little bit of homework, even if it means seeing the movie a few days later than you'd like to. Uh, he's a master filmmaker, and his intention is to display the film in this format, and you will be blown away if you see it the way it's meant to be seen. I think it's funny, Vic. That I don't have you seen the stories of what's going on as they've been trying to show it in the seventy millimeter. Yeah, they had to fly in some projectionists from LA, and projectors are shutting off. And yeah, it's 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 hard. If you've ever been in a, a IMAX projection room, it's incredible. It's just this giant machine. It's like the size of the front of a bus, and the reel of film is like bigger than a hula hoop. And you have these projectionists just trying to string it all along and unspool the tape it's it's yeah it, i don't know how they do it it looks impossible uh and, and and our theaters just aren't built for them anymore i it breaks my heart to say that i i love the idea of tactile uh tactile filmmaking in that way but you know you hear these stories people like ah, oh, i went to see it and it shut down and uh you know this all this that or the other thing but it's just we're just so used to digital prints now that it's actually more difficult to show things like this. But I'm I haven't seen it like that, but I'm certain it adds to the film. I do want to try and see it in that format if I can. I know in 2008 when I went to see The Dark Knight in IMAX on film, um, the the opening scene where the Joker's robbing the bank and it was just projected in the best possible quality. Like the audience gasped. How often are you in a theater when the audience gasps, right? Now we have HD TVs and we're used to seeing really refined pictures, but there's there's nothing like it. When you're in a big theater with a giant sound system and watching prints on film, it's it's superb. And uh, the film's cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema, he also worked with Jordan Peele on Nope. And like this guy is just a maniac. They were like reinventing ways to shoot 
uh, shoot night scenes. Like they invented new technology to be able to get the best picture available at night. So these are people who are just world-class at what they do. Nolan brought them on board for a reason. I think this might be the first time ever they've shot IMAX in black and white. So they had to like invent new technology to shoot those scenes. Uh, so it's just on a technical level, you you can't ask for anything better. It's it's just really worth your time. Go out of your way to see it if you can. What what I'm hearing from you, Vic, is that we should watch it on our cell phone. That's what I'm <laughs> sure. <trying> to... <laughs> no, Christopher Nolan will come to your house and set off a bomb. <laughs> well, if you want to meet Christopher Nolan, I mean, no, <laughs> that's one way. Um, guys, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. We should screen it or skip it. Oppenheimer, screen it or skip it. I'll screen it for sure. Yeah, screen it. it. I I don't know what you're going to see. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to lie. The box office isn't bad right now. There's some great stuff out there. Um, but this is absolutely, absolutely one of the best films of the year. I'm really, really got my fingers crossed that... Uh, I know it won't happen, but I'd love at Oscar time if Barbenheimer made a comeback and it <laughs> the leading two nominations were Oppenheimer and Barbie. I'm sure I think that would be that'd be that fun. It'd be like... They allow 10 nominations, right? So I can see Barbie slipping in there, uh, especially for best. Would it be adapted screenplay, best production design, maybe cinematography? Um, it's got a shot. They can go head to head. I'm definitely going to go head to head at the Globes this year for uh, best musical or comedy. Uh, that and Oppenheimer? <laughs> well, they're both going to get nominations. They split the categories. But yeah, they'll both be there. Like, they could both walk away with the top awards in their categories. They could. They could. Uh, I am now waiting for the Oppenheimer musical, and I'm really hoping. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, it, it really, it's funny because the, the Barbenheimer thing has been so much fun, but it's been so, uh, so pleasant. People are just like, just go see both. There's no fight. You want to pit him? You pit him up at Oscar time, then we'll see a fight. Um. Anyway, uh, guys, thank you so much. So much fun. I love chatting with you about anything and everything. But honestly, uh, I'm so glad to have you here today. Um, Vic. Uh, well, and Ben too, I guess. Where Where can people? How can people connect with you? How can they find you? Sure, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes at uh, Victor Stiff. I got about 350, 400 reviews on there and Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at Victor J. Stiff. Fantastic. And Ben, I don't know if you're on the grid or not. So maybe people... not, not so much anymore. <laughs> Just look for you around Scarborough and wave. And yeah, miss you. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I've said too much. No, uh... <laughs> no, I appreciate it, guys. And, uh, Certainly for you at home, a reminder, you can find us wherever podcasts are available. Uh, and if you go to, on YouTube and search up Screenfish, you can find episodes like this and so much more, including interviews with some fantastic uh, industry professionals about their latest projects. If you go to the podcast page at screenfish.net, you can download Fishing for More, which are some small group questions to help you get the conversation started where you are. And if, as always, you can find the podcast wherever your favorite podcast is. Um, so as always thank you guys and for you at home we started the conversation this was screenfish